We are coming to the uh, last chapter. Finally, we've come to the last chapter of Revelation and, uh, of course, the last chapter of, of Scripture itself. We've, uh, we've seen all, uh, all these things completed, including the, the wiping away of the last vestiges of the Old Covenant and the vindication of the New Covenant in the destruction of Jerusalem and then the Church Age. We, we saw that uh, we as believers, when we, when we pass from this life, we reign with Christ in the presence of the Triune God and, and perfect fellowship with Him. And we also saw that uh, after, after this final stage, when history comes to its close, uh, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, and it was described to us in chapter 21 um, as the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven adorned as a bride for her groom. Uh, last time we saw that uh, John doesn't uh, doesn't really tell us anything about the new heavens and new earth uh, in 21 anyway. He simply states that he saw them and then breaks off into a descriptions of the new city, the new Jerusalem. And then we saw an angel come to John and say, come, I will show you the bride of the lamb. But what the angel actually showed John in chapter 21 was the, the city. So in a real way, we need to understand that chapter 22 uh, the final chapter is really just a continuation of what we've already seen in chapter 21. John is going to close his prophetic book by um, by uh, returning to the same language that began in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of Scripture. He's going to give us uh, some detail about this new city, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, and the details he gives us, um, once again, as we've seen so many times before in Revelation, are going to echo pictures that God's people have been given uh, throughout the history of mankind. He's going to reference and allude to several Old Testament images as he describes the fulfillment of all things. Now, this becomes readily apparent when um, you look at the first, just the first five verses of Revelation 22. Uh, John is describing what he sees, and the description is um, that that description is a it's a restoration of creation uh, to God's first intention in the Garden of Eden. It's it's a return to the Garden of Eden. It's a return to reality as it was as it was meant to be. So let me just read verses one and two in Revelation twenty twenty two and we'll uh, we'll try not to make this one uh too long, but there are quite a few Old Testament passages that are referenced and since we've been doing that all the way through, uh, even though this chapter is one that's relatively easy easily understood by uh, people who are steeped in in scripture, um, I still need to make at least make reference to those Old Testament passages. In verse one and two, it says, "Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." Just a just a quick reading of these first two verses. I mean, it ought to bring those images of the garden flooding back to your mind. We uh, here we see the river that flowed out of the garden. Uh, now it's flowing out of the throne of God, which is in the midst of the city. And we also see that in this new creation, the tree of life is there. Um, it is from this tree that man was exiled because he sinned. And uh, but let's let's take these images one at a time, so we don't get ahead of ourselves and see uh, the depth of 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 what the Holy Spirit's saying through John. Uh, first, we have of course the river of the water of life. Uh, it's possible that the water of life here could be translated living water. 
daughter. That would um, that's what uh, grammarians call an attributive genitive. Uh, that's for you Greek nerds. But this this is this picture of a river of life, a river of living water is uh is one that we we've seen repeatedly through through scripture i mean it should immediately as students of the new testament it should draw your mind to christ's words about living water in john chapter 4 when he talked to uh the samaritan woman and he said he says if you knew who it was who was speaking to you you would have asked me to give you this gift living water but um more to the point uh this references uh old testament prophets uh specifically ezekiel um in ezekiel chapter 47 we're going to see references to ezekiel 47 throughout this chapter in revelation 22 but in in chapter 47 we've seen this before as we've walked through revelation but um that uh that section of ezekiel is him prophesying about an eschatological temple an end time temple a perfect uh, a perfect dwelling place of god a perfect dwelling place where god and men dwell and he describes it in ezekiel 47 as a perfect temple in ezekiel 47 1 it says then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar so you see this river flowing out from the temple then in Ezekiel uh, 47 verses 6 through 7, he says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And we're going to see also later on in Ezekiel 47, 12, um, he, he says he's going to say, And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. We'll see that as we move through uh, move through Revelation. He's describing the same thing that Ezekiel saw. Now, why is it important to say that uh, you know this river is flowing out of uh, the throne of God here? Why is it in Ezekiel's vision it was flowing out of this perfect temple? So why do we say uh, this is what Ezekiel saw when we saw that this whole thing is the temple? Uh, in Revelation twenty one twenty two, if you remember, John said, "And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb." And that's why we see in Ezekiel's vision, the river flowing out of the temple. Well, here in Revelation, we see the river flowing out from the throne of God. And this river of living water, it's also a, an allusion to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, which says, On that day, talking about that eschatological uh, fulfillment time, that end time, he says, On that day, living waters, waters of life, shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and in winter so you see these pictures john is doing the same thing that he's always done through revelation he is he is showing the fulfillment of all these old testament prophecies all what the prophets have uh foreseen in coming in the in the uh the the new heavens and the new earth the perfected uh in time uh 
uh, temple of God, dwelling place of God. And it should resonate with you as, as students of the New Testament that John's fulfillment, we've, you've probably heard many sermons about the new heavens, the new earth. You've probably heard many um, um, things about what what uh, creation will be like and all those things. But what, what, we, uh, what we need to make sure we understand is that this is the fulfillment. John is presenting them as the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke of all that Ezekiel said, and all that Zechariah said. So when we go back and we're reading those passages in Ezekiel, when we're reading the prophets, we don't read them as uh, Old Testament history. We don't read them as just a history book. I mean, it is history, but we don't read them just as a history book. We, we read them in light of the fulfillment of these things that we have been given. So when you go back, for instance, just an example, if you're studying Ezekiel and you're walking through Ezekiel and you're, you're talking talking about the Babylonian captivity and you're talking about the the, uh, the deportation and the, the the visions of Ezekiel and you know you're walking through the book you're doing a study on Ezekiel maybe um, it would pro- it would be it would be it would do injustice to the text to not bring in these allusions to the fulfillment of these things which is in the new heavens the new earth which is uh from the throne of god and the lamb uh it would do it would do injustice to the text to uh to uh, not see that uh, central meaning behind the the text of Ezekiel. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but what uh, what I'm trying to get you to see is that uh, so often we read these Old Testament passages and we see um, you know different types of fulfillment, and you know one day they're going to build a new temple, and this temple is going to be John. John sees these the fulfillment of these things in the new heavens. And the new earth, he sees them in the eternal state, not just some uh, period of time when everything gets better or when, you know, there is a a new temple in Jerusalem and the the Israel gets together and decides they want to build a new temple. And then, you know, all all those different kind of mindsets, all those different kind of uh, uh, scenarios that we've seen foretold so to speak through you know by modern day people in books that they write john sees the fulfillment of ezekiel's prophecies in the new heavens and the new earth and so that reality is what he is seeing but of course i mean you already know we mentioned it earlier but the the initial the initial picture that he's drawing from is from genesis in genesis 210 it says a river flowed out of eden to water the garden uh, so each section of of the new creation that we're going to see as we walk through chapter 22 makes reference to the reestablishment of this perfect Eden. And that's what the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Joel, and all those uh, prophets foretold was not just a, hey, it's going to get better and God's going to win in the end. It's a, it's a God is going to return us. God is going to redeem his people back from what we have done, back from from the curse of Adam and all things are going to be reestablished the way that they were meant to be when Adam and Eve were in the garden. And you see that in these pictures, you see the river flowing out of the city. You see the tree of life. You see the, the same things that we've seen, even in the, in the uh, letters to the churches, he says to those who overcome, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, uh, which is in the paradise, which is the Greek word for garden, uh, the paradise of God. I think that's Revelation chapter 2 in one of the letters to the churches. 
Now, as we read those first two verses in Revelation where it says, He showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. Right here, there is a question of punctuation, and that's going to determine how we see these first two uh, how we see these first two verses. Uh, some translations place the period at the end of verse 1, which means uh, through the middle of the street describes the tree of life, which means the text is saying uh, through the middle of the street and on either side was the tree of life. Uh, other translations place the period at the end of uh, the sentence after through the middle of the street, meaning that the river itself runs through the middle of the of the of the city uh in the king james version it says and he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of god and the lamb period in the middle of the street uh in the midst of the street of it on either side and on either side of the river there was the tree of life then that's intimating that the tree of life was in the middle and on either side whereas if you place the period before it uh it seems as if the river itself was in the middle of the street and the tree was on either side of. Uh, now, you got to remember there was no punctuation in the original text of, of Revelation. The earliest texts of the New Testament were written in a form of Greek called, uh, it's a form of Greek lettering called unsealed text, which included no punctuation, no spaces between words, no spaces between paragraph. It was just, it was just one big block of text. So there's no way to say that this punctuation is right and that punctuation is wrong. But people have often noticed that it, it would be kind of weird to say that in the middle of the street and on either side of the street uh, was the tree of life but and that's why they place the punctuation where they do but when you look at the references to which John is is pointing you got to admit that that both readings are possible so it could it could say it could mean that in the middle of the street was the river and on either side was the tree of life it could also mean that the river flowed through the city and uh, on in in the midst of the in the midst of the street and on either side was the tree of life. Both of those readings are equally possible. I'll, uh, in, in course, it's a reference. I already read the verse to you to uh, Ezekiel forty-seven twelve. It says, "And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will be there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor the fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for." for food and their leaves for healing. And that's exactly what John says. He says on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, fruit every month, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were, were for healing of the nations that it's, it's, um, it's uh, it's obvious that John is pointing to this uh, Ezekiel passage, um, and because of this quote from Ezekiel, some see uh, some people see many trees of life represented here in Revelation. You know, there's trees on either side of the river or on either side of the of the street. If you uh, remember, just a moment ago, I wrote I read Ezekiel forty-seven seven, and it says. Uh, as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. So he, Ezekiel vision sees lots of trees. And so there are many, because of this uh, uh, this allusion to Ezekiel here in Revelation, many people see that there are not just one tree of life in the new creation, but many trees of life. Uh, and John may be using the singular tree of life 
here in Revelation to emphasize the connection to Genesis. It's possible. Uh, I'm not saying that it is so or that it's not so. What we do know for sure is that it is a return to uh, the the um, reality of Eden, where man dwelled uh, eternally with God, was meant to dwell eternally with God, and uh, uh, man was meant to partake of the tree of life and meant to have fellowship with God. And so all, all these things about whether there is a tree of life or whether there are trees of life on either side of the city, uh, I can't be absolutely sure. Uh, it's not worth arguing about. Uh, the point that he's making is that it is a return to Eden, but those things are things that you need to know because he is referencing the Ezekiel 47 vision which speaks of multiple trees and so it's just something to ponder on but it's definitely a reference to the garden of eden man was exiled from paradise uh paradise the greek word for garden uh man was exiled from paradise and forbidden to eat of the tree of life that's genesis three twenty-two. then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever and he drove him out he he exiled him from the garden in 24 genesis 3 24 he says he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life that was what man lost in the midst of the garden and in revelation 22 we see the restoration of what was lost in genesis the nations are healed it says by taking of this this tree of life the nations are able to access the tree of life because they no longer bear the sin of adam and that fulfillment is found of course you you've got to know in Christ, Christ has taken the curse away. Christ has paid for the sin uh, of Adam and the sins of all of Adam's descendants who are found in Christ. Christ has taken that away and now they have access to that tree, that perfect fellowship with God because of what Jesus has done. Now, there's also a question of interpretation here. Some, uh, and this is entirely speculative, so... You know, I'm just going to give it to you because people talk about it, but there's, there's, uh, it's really a, just a question of interpretation. Some people believe that the tree of life and the healing leaves, so to speak, uh, must be, they must be continually eaten by the nations in the new creation in order to live forever. Uh, what that means is like, uh, uh, it bears its fruit each month, and therefore uh, the those who live in the new city, the new creation, must go to the tree periodically to uh, revitalize or restore their health or their life or, or, or all those kind of things. I, I don't think that follows from the description of the new creation that we've already seen uh, because there's no more death. There's no more sickness. We've already seen that in the last chapter. There's nothing left in the curse of creation to be healed from the the tree of life here is a symbol of the return of man to the physical presence of god the restoration of the fall of adam uh, the 12 manner of fruits uh, we've seen the number 12 symbolize fulfillment association with the god's people all through revelation so um, there isn't any warrant to depart from that now even though you know it does mean each year, you know, it says it's going to each month it's going to uh, produce its fruit, which is why, you know, it's 12, 12 manner of fruits in in Revelation. The Ezekiel text says it's going to uh, produce its fruit each month. And so 
we see these things. We see the tree of life. We see the river. We see we see the uh, fulfillment of the the restoration of the Garden of Eden in in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, there's a there's a lot of application that can be drawn. I'm not going to take too much time in doing it, but I often tell people, especially even I had this conversation yesterday as at the the hospital as a hospital chaplain uh, talking about a, a woman who is about to um, about to say goodbye for the last time or in this life anyway uh, to her mother and we talked about heaven and we talked about what it will be like and there's a lot of speculation and those kind of things that, and you know you go into the inter- intermediate state you go to be with the Lord to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord but uh, on the day when Christ returns on the day when uh, creation is made anew it will be real it will be real life it'll be I can reach out and touch you I can talk to you it'll be just like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden it'll be a restoration to what creation was supposed to be in the beginning I've always been terrified of being an angel floating around in the clouds somewhere or some fat little cherub with a with a bow and or being you know if you're a Star Wars fan you can be part of the force or just out there in space somewhere floating around with spirits and you know that's not life that's not eternal life to me uh, and the reality is that's not what eternal life will be in, in the, the new heavens and the new earth it'll be a return to exactly what Adam and Eve uh, um, experienced now I'm not saying I'm not saying we'll all be running around naked or anything like, you know, anything like that. But, you know, understand what we're what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fulfillment of what Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. We're talking about what Adam was supposed to have been. And you and I know as as students of the Bible that Adam and Eve were real people. Uh, There was a real garden. They worked in the garden even before the fall. They tended and kept it. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They had interaction with each other. They were told to be, you know, uh, to, uh, to, tend and keep and to subdue the earth and they they had tasks and 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 things that they were supposed to do and that is the that is what the return of uh the uh the the what was lost will look like uh it will be real is my point uh don't mean we'll be walking around in the jungle all day long but uh, it will be real it's going to be real life it'll be just like life here uh physically Except there won't be any more sin. There won't be any more perishing. We will have perfected uh, bodies. We will have, you know, there will be no more crying, no more pain. We'll be in the actual presence of our God. Uh, We won't have to battle with sin anymore. We won't have to battle with uh, the effects of the curse anymore. It will be real. To to illustrate the realness of it, I often tell the young young people that I get to minister to, you know, if I if I decide to jump on my four wheeler and go down to the Crystal Sea and go fishing for a thousand years, you know, I'll be able to do that. If I decide, you know, to go and to interact with my grandmother and great grandmother and ancestors and those that have gone before me, people that, you know, the Apostle Paul and, and Christ Himself. Uh, It will be real. It will be real life. You won't lose anything that you know here. You'll know there. The people that you know here, you will know there. I take that from the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ. And they were still Moses and they were still Elijah. And, of course, I've already told you this before in a previous episode, but they spoke to each other. Moses and Elijah spoke to each other about Jesus's what they call in Luke an exodus from Jerusalem. Talking about the crucifixion. So they interacted with each other hundreds and hundreds of years after their deaths. They were still Moses and they were still Elijah. And so 
the the reality is that the creation the new creation is the return to what was lost in the beginning the bible is a unified whole it's one story of uh, the fall of man and the redemption of man for the glory of god in verse 3 in revelation 22 it says there will no longer be any curse that's the curse of adam the curse of the fall of creation and the throne of god and the end of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him some translation says his servants will worship him uh, it could mean could mean both it does mean both um of course here you see the reference to the the fall you know there there's going to be no longer any curse in the new creation there won't be any curse we'll we'll look at that in a second but you also need to be aware that that this verse is almost uh an identical quotation a direct quote from Zechariah 14:11 it says there that people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security now it if you look up Zechariah 14 in your English Bible, it'll probably say there will no longer be destruction or there will no longer be corruption. And that's because that's a that's a that's a right translation as well. There's nothing wrong with that. That's because our English Bibles are translating the Hebrew text of Zechariah 14:11 and that's very it's what they should be doing. Uh, that's that's correct translation. But remember, we've talked about this before, the fact that the New Testament authors, they almost exclusively quoted from the Greek Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew. And in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, Zechariah 14.11 says curse. It says the word anathema. You probably know that from some of Paul's writings. There will be no more curse. And that is what John is quoting here. There won't be any more curse there won't be any more curse of the fall or of creations and it says also that god's presence is with his people god's throne will be present with his people in perfect communion just as in the garden of eden uh notice one thing that you need to notice here in verse three is that both god the father and the lamb are said to sit on a singular throne a singular throne um, and that all his servants will serve or worship him singular so even here in revelation you have a picture of the triunity of god you have a picture of the father and son uh, b- both together different persons but one being in the in the the triune god and the the end of verse 3 through verse 5 it says and his bond servants will serve him or worship him uh it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the lord god will illumine them <clears throat> and they will reign forever and ever god's people are going to serve in his presence or worship in his presence the word is latruo and it in different contexts it can mean worship or serve uh, uh, but this is the joy of the the regenerated heart to serve him uh most people you know if you talk to a worldly person about heaven or about eternity you know that the, everybody wants to go to heaven because they think they're you know it'll be laying on a couch letting people feed grapes to you and just relaxing in perfect bliss and all that but for those who do not love god those who do not desire to serve him and worship him and give him glory uh, heaven won't be heaven <laughs> eternity won't be eternity because his servants will serve him his servants will worship him uh, and and the idea is we've seen over and over again in revelation that all his people now 
are priests of God in this perfect temple, uh, in this new creation, which is the perfected temple. They're serving as priests served in the earthly temple, ministering before the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord in his presence as the priest worshiped in the very presence. The, the high priest would go into the very presence of God to present his offering, to present the sacrifice of the day of atonement. Uh, and we've already seen this truth pictured and foretold in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 6 says, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests uh, to his God and Father. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then Revelation 26, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the idea of us being priests and serving in the presence of God in the uh, the perfect city of God as priests did in the uh, uh, earthly tabernacle in the temple is uh, something that we've seen over and over again. All God's people, all the believers, all those who are in Christ are priests unto God and will enjoy the presence of his, uh, the communion of his presence. Life will consist of uh, of serving and worshiping God in the new creation, just as Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden, they they were to have intimate and perfect fellowship with God. They were to they were to be His image bearers throughout the creation, and that is the picture of what we see uh, of what reality will be like when all is fulfilled. It says it says in those verses in Revelation that His people will see His face. That's something that uh, God told Moses could never happen uh, in Exodus thirty three twenty. He says, but He said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live but it is a fulfillment of psalm eleven seven, which says uh, for the lord is righteous he loves righteousness the upright will behold his face and of course we've already mentioned that in the tabernacle in the temple only the high priest could go into the immediate presence and of course you probably have heard many of the stories about them tying ropes to the to the ankles of the high priest and rightly so and if he went in with sin upon him he would die and they'd have to pull him out um, uh, only with a proper blood sacrifice was he to go in. But as priests, we will all be uh, with the Lord. Uh, we will all be in the perfect presence of the Lord with boldness, not in fear, because of the sacrifice of Christ. His people will actually see his face. Uh, and it also says that we'll have his name on our foreheads there in those verses. Um, this is, of course, a picture that we've seen before. It's a picture of the high priest in the Old Testament. Exodus 28, verses 36 through 38 say, You also you shall also make a plate of pure gold. This is talking about the high priest's vestments uh, that they were making to serve in the tabernacle. It says, you will also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban, which is on the, the head. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. That's the picture that we're seeing. His name will be on all of his people's foreheads. And of course, you, we've already seen it in Revelation. Revelation 3.12 says, He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And then, of course, in Revelation 7, we saw it. I mean, who can forget the 144,000 that have the seal of the Lamb on their forehead? So it's something that we've seen over and over again. But here, all God's people will have 
that uh, that seal. And what it means is it's not that we're going to walk around with some Hebrew letters on our forehead. It's it's saying that we are going to be accepted in the presence of God. We are going to be righteous in the sight of God, and we're going to be worthy to come before the throne of God in perfect worship and service without fear, not because of our own righteousness, of course, but because of what Christ has done for us. Um, in verse 5 in Revelation 22, it says, And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have the need of the of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. Uh, we will live in the light. There will no longer be the need for light. Now, <clears throat> this is uh, once again a fulfillment of what the prophets spoke in the end of uh, the end of Isaiah uh, chapters. I don't know, 60 through 66, right in there. Uh, Isaiah is particularly concerned with showing um, this eschatological reality, this new uh, this new perfected reality that's going to uh, that's going to uh, be present uh, when God re- when God finally uh, brings fulfillment of the redemption purposes that He has been working through in throughout history. And in, in Isaiah sixty verses nineteen through twenty, it says these words: No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God. For for your glory, your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Now, it is possible, it is possible that this could be descriptive, uh, possible that light will truly be from God, you know, as in the beginning of creation. If you remember back to the days of creation, light was created on the first day. You know, remember God said, let there be light and there was light. But the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day. And so a lot of people have pointed to those things. There won't need to be a, a sun and a moon anymore because God will be the light. And, you know, there's talk of in Genesis chapter one that God himself was the light uh, that produced the light uh, there in the beginning of creation. That's very possible, very possible, even probable maybe. But the point is that creation has returned to its pre-fall state. There is no more corruption in creation. There is no more. There is no more darkness. There is no more evil. There is no more wickedness. There is no more curse. There is no more uh, separation from God. We will be in His presence forever. And we will reign forever with him. We've already seen that before. But in the second part of verse 5, Revelation 22, it says that his people will reign with him. They'll reign forever with him. And, of course, this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. We've read this before in Revelation. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18 says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And Daniel 7, 27 says, Then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and, the, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So I hope you see, uh, since just in the first five verses of Revelation, uh, the multitude of references to the prophets. We've seen the prophet Daniel. We've seen the prophet Isaiah. We've seen the prophet Ezekiel. We've seen Zechariah. 
Messiah. We've seen over and over again that the new heavens and the new earth, which is culminated in the presence of God and the Lamb, uh, are the fulfillment of what all of these prophets pointed toward. The Old Testament is pointing toward the reality of Christ and the fulfillment of Christ. Um, so, that's the first five uh, five uh, verses describing the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this final section of Revelation is kind of hard to outline. Uh, I did it the best I could. That outline is on the website if you want to go find it. Um, it. It almost seems like it's it almost seems like it's a bunch of random assertions and declarations and commands to end out the book. They're just kind of thrown in there. Uh, but it's here at this point that we have. We've left the descriptions of the events to come, uh, and we've moved into into John being told why these prophecies were given and what must be done now because of them. As you, the reader, who have walked through the Book of Revelation with me, um, there is a, there is a there's a command for you. There is a mandate for you now that you realize and understand these things. Now that you've read this book, uh, there is a there is something that you must do. In verse six, it says, and he said to me, he says, John, uh, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. That's what we've seen over and over again. The prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He says, first of all, this prophecy is true. All the words of the book, the vision. He said, these words are faithful and true. They're declared to be true. They are given by God who spoke through the Old Testament prophets. And we've seen that from, um, from chapter 1 of Revelation, that all of these references to the prophets, all these references to the Old Testament, this is the fulfillment. These visions, these prophecies, this reality is the fulfillment to which the entire Old Testament was looking. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to those two disciples and of course, they didn't realize who he was. And it says, and then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opened the scriptures and showed them all the things that the scriptures said regarding himself. The Old Testament is Christian scripture and it's about Jesus. But he also says here in this verse, verse six, that the prophecy is imminent. Uh, he says the events were going to begin soon as this book was read in the churches of the first century. Don't forget that. We're going to see some alignment here with that. Um, they These events were going to begin soon as they were read. Remember, we've, we made a case early for the pre-70 dating of, of Revelation and I believe that that case is valid. Um, but once again, Again, you see the same thing here that we saw in the very first chapter of Revelation. It is necessary. That must soon take place. doesn't just say that are going to soon happen. It says they must soon. It is necessary that they take place. And this harkens back to Daniel. It's the same thing we saw in the very beginning of Revelation. Go back to chapter 1 of this podcast and, and listen to what we talked about. The only other place in all of Scripture where it says it is necessary that this must happen is the prophecy of Daniel. And he told, he told them there, he said, Seal up the words of this book uh, because uh, it, uh, it it's necessary to take place in the end in the end times in the last days. But here John is going to be told right here: Don't seal up the words of this book because the time is coming. His time is coming soon. The events of Revelation 
uh, were inaugurated in the first century. They were relevant to the first century church, but they also extend through the thousand years, through the church age, through all ages to the end. The tribulation, as it's called, was near for those in the first century, but tribulations and trials and the same things that we see recapitulated over and over again throughout history go on for all of God's people. Paul said through many tribulations, we're going to enter into the kingdom of God. In verse seven, it says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Jesus said, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy in this book. This is an extremely important point that the book of Revelation made at the beginning and now makes at the end. These prophecies are not just so you will have information about the end times. They're not just intellectual exercises of uh, biblical interpretation, uh, although that is how we understand scripture by using grounded rules of, of hermeneutics and interpretation. These prophecies are to be kept. They are a call for a response of obedience and faithfulness. They, they call the believer to steadfastness and to be unmovable when facing trials and temptations of the world. We're called to fix our eyes on Jesus and, and to keep our affections pointed toward the things in heaven rather than the things here on earth. Um, and, uh, of course, this would be relevant to the churches that he's writing. Remember, we saw all the things that they're going through, all the, the cultural things where they were trying to... Um be, they were pressured to be worshiping other gods or to sacrifice to Caesar or to sacrifice to other gods. And John is calling them to be steadfast. And he's giving them this these prophetic words, this uh, vision that God has given him to show the churches that uh, he, he's giving that for a purpose, not just to give you information, not to give you a snapshot of of what's coming. And, and, you know, yay, now you have all this information. You're mandated now in light of what you know is coming, what you know uh, to be uh, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and God's victory in creation and the destruction of the curse through creation. You are mandated to be steadfast in the midst of this crooked and perverse world. Uh, verses 8 and 9 tell us that we are to worship God alone. No other gods before me. And that was relevant to the churches of the first century. But it's also relevant to the church throughout every age. In verse 8 and 9, John, uh, for the life of me, I can't understand this section. But John goes to try to worship the angel again. Uh, it says, I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. <clears throat> and here's the mandate. Worship God. That's the command. Uh, even after all that he's seen and been through, John's still in awe of the angelic messenger. He's still you know, glory surrounding him. He still tries to worship. It, his, he did it in chapter 19, verse 10 of Revelation. He tried to worship the angel. Angel does this, this <clears throat> excuse me, the same thing. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant. The angel rejects his worship again. And the angel commands something to John that John wants us to understand. He wants the churches of the first century to understand. Only God is to be worshiped. Only God is to be worshipped. This is a warning. It's a warning to us all that only God is is to be to be worshipped. We <clears throat> we got to reject the idolatrous you know worship that the world and Satan want to impose on us. They want to sneak it into our worship practices. They want to deceive us into those things. We we got to uh, reject the worship of of things that seem right. 
but they're not God. See, the, John is standing in the midst of, of angelic glory, seeing visions of, of heaven and creation and, and the, the fulfillment of God's purposes. He is standing in the midst of something you and I can only imagine. And it all seems good. It, it all is good. It all is right and perfect. And, and it's just glory everywhere. And he, he can't help himself but to fall down and to try to worship in the midst of this. But the angel says, no, it's not right. It's not right for you to worship this glory. It's not right for you to worship uh, this heavenly being. Uh, the only one who deserves our worship is God. And that's something that the churches in the first century needed. It's something that we need today. Even things that seem right. You know, we talked about that where the the they needed to offer incense to the Caesar. They needed to worship at these pagan temples in order to work, in order to be accepted into the society, in order to uh be uh, be productive and and make a living in the societies they lived in. We talked about those in the letters of of uh, the seven churches, but it was not right for them to worship anyone but god anything but god you couldn't make the case that you know it's okay this is what we do it's just part of the culture it's part of it's what we all do it says no even if it's a heavenly being itself you cannot you cannot worship anyone but god you cannot serve any other god but him it's an important message for us to to uh, hear now verses 10 and 11 they're very difficult passages to interpret and there are many different ways people have taken them i'm uh, i'm i'm not going to survey the different interpretations uh just because i'm going to tell you what i think i'm going to show you the problem and 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 the solution to that problem it says <clears throat> verse 10 11 says and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. We've already talked about this. For that time is near. That's uh, exactly what he told Daniel, except he said, do seal it up because the time is far off. Now he's telling John, don't seal it up because the time is near. He says, here's the difficult part. He says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. That's a difficult passage. I mean, why would God say, let the one doing wrong continue to do wrong? Let the one who's filthy just stay in your filth. Um, there are lots of different explanations uh, about what this means. But I believe that verses 10 and 11 are given so that we would understand this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12. We talked about do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Prophecy that is a that is a, a reference to Daniel 12, but this verse here in verse 11 let the one who does wrong still do wrong. That is also a reference to Daniel chapter 12. Let me read Daniel chapter 12 verses 7 through 10. It's kind of a chunk of text, so try to uh, try to follow along with me. You may want to stop the recording and turn over to Daniel and look at it. It says I heard the man dressed in linen. This is Daniel 12, verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be completed. As for me... I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel. He says, for these words are concealed and sealed unto the end time. He says, may 
Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. He says the wicked will act wickedly. The uh, uh, the time has come, of course, we've seen, and John is seeing the fulfillment of these things. He says, remember in, in Revelation 10 and 11, he says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. But in Daniel chapter 12, he told, he told uh, Daniel um, to seal up. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time and but he tells john not because the time is near and then in the very next verse he says many will be purged purified and refined now in in that translation it's not exactly perfect he says those who will be purged will be purged those purified will be purified those those refined will be refined he says and the wicked will be wicked the wicked will act wickedly so the reason John puts this in here and let the one who is his does wrong do wrong and let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteous. Uh, the reason he puts the word let, which is it's a it's a command third person in Greek. The reason he puts the word let the one be uh, who is filthy be filthy. It's showing the recognition that Daniel's prophecy of him saying many will be purged to be purged, many will be purified to be purified, many the wicked will act wickedly. Uh, it is recognition that Daniel's prophecy is coming to pass. He's saying, let this fulfillment come to pass. <coughs> Excuse me. And so <clears throat> verse 10 and 11 are both references to Daniel chapter 12. And it is saying, he's saying, this is the fulfillment. It is here. This is let this fulfillment come. And we're going to see that over again, where he says, come Lord Jesus. Um, and finally, at the end of the book, we're given uh, some basic declarations. Now that the prophecy has been revealed, now that we know the truth, we're de- the coming judgment is declared unto us. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has uh, done. Jesus is coming soon. Now there's uh, two or three ways that we can take two or three right ways to take to take what Jesus is saying here. He indeed came in judgment in the first century, so to speak, as uh, in vindication of his Messiahship. He brought judgment. He brought judgment to uh, the people who rejected him. Um, but he also, you know, if you remember back into the letters of the churches, he says to all the churches, uh, most of the churches, he said to the church at Ephesus, repent or else I will come to you. And I will take away your candlestick, your your lampstand. Uh, and so that coming, of course, was not the second coming, but it was the uh, um, the coming in judgment on that church for its its uh, refusal to do its first works, to uh, uh, return to its first love. Uh, but there is a real sense that it is soon that Jesus is returning. These events will be inaugurated soon after uh after john writes these prophecies but they will also be fulfilled soon as jesus returns Uh, he will return he will return even for those in the first century who are reading this 
When they go, remember it says they're going to reign. When they die, they're going to go and be with the Lord. They're going to reign with him for a thousand years. They're going to be with him. And his His coming, his returning will be will be imminent. Um, and these are the days that we're living in, These the church age, the thousand years that we talked about in Revelation 20. Those are the last days. There'll, there will never be another epoch of, of, uh, of uh, history, of salvation history. There will never be any further revelation. God has said all he has to say in Christ Jesus. When I say no further revelation, I mean <clears throat> there will never be another Another prophet speaking new things that we haven't heard before. There will never be another uh, book of <clears throat> whoever discovered that we add to our Bible. All of all of uh, salvation history has been completed, and we are now, uh, as the kingdom grows, we are now waiting for Christ to return. Um, these are indeed the last days, and, and this here, this this is a uh, coming. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 10. He says, "Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him." So you see here that Jesus says, "I'm coming quickly," uh, in fulfillment of what Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 40, and in the Septuagint. Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Isaiah verse, Isaiah 40 verse 10, is almost verbatim to Christ's words here. He is coming with his wages. The judgment is imminent. And then in verse 13, you have the declaration of Christ's divinity. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And, you know, that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. They are references to passages in Isaiah also where Yahweh says, I am the first and the last. There are no other gods but me. Um, this is what Christ says about himself. He is God in the flesh. And then verse 14 and 15 are a declaration of blessing and cursing. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city outside this is the cursing outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves peace or, or everyone who loves and practices lying um so first you have blessed are those with access to the city right it's the same thing we saw in revelation 7 verse 14 through 17 it says, I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, thirst uh, no more, the, nor will the sun beat down on them. For the lamb is the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. It's the same thing that we've seen in Revelation 7. Uh, and those with access to the city is what he's talking about. Those blessed are those who have access to the city, access to this tree of life. And we know from Romans 5 verses 1 through 2, we have access by grace uh, through faith. Just as Adam was denied to the right to eat to the tree of life, we, uh, those who are uh, citizens of the city, who have the name of the city written upon them, they have access to this tree of life. But it also shows us a picture of these cursed people, those who are outside the city. Now, this is not a picture of people hanging out outside the city walls, wishing they could get in, uh, trying to climb over, you know, these people, this almost exact list has already been listed in the previous, um, in the previous, uh, previous, uh, uh, chapter, uh, 
have been thrown into the lake of fire. There is the point of the passage is there's no place in the new creation for sin and wickedness. Those have already partaken in the second death. Um, then you have verse 16, the declaration of Jesus's Messiahship. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These are names of Christ as Messiah. Uh, this course we have seen, it says, I have sent my angel to testify to you to uh, to you these things for the churches it's a reference back to the churches the seven letters in the beginning of revelation it's uh it's showing us that this book is a connected whole it's meant for those seven churches in the first century also meant for all god's people in all ages um, but this is this is applicable to both the churches in the first century and the church um in all ages, and their titles of uh, we see the titles of Christ as divine Messiah. I am the root. I am the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. It's kind of a mixture of Old Testament passages. Numbers twenty four seventeen says, "I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush crush the through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons." Of Sheath. Isaiah 11 1 says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will uh, bear fruit. Isaiah 11 10, Then in the day that, in, then in that day, uh, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand uh, as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Uh, and then you have at the end of the prophecy, the final exhortation verses 17 through 21 i'm just going to read the whole text so we can get done it says the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes to take the water of life the living water without cost i testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues which are written in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy god will take away his part from the tree of life and from the the holy city which are written in this book he who testifies to these things says yes i am coming quickly amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with all amen of course it's the invitation to come you see that over and over and over and over and over again we don't need um, don't need to spend too much time we are invited to come and be a part of this creation but there's also a warning there don't add don't take away. And, of course, that is a, that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I'm teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. It's also from Deuteronomy 12:32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And then Deuteronomy 13 just incidentally introduces the false prophets and teach differently and those kind of things. But it's also, see the same thing, Deuteronomy 29:19. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land and the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in the book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Now, understand, this is not just a warning to scribes who are copying the Bible. 
A lot of people take it this way. This is not just a warning for people who are writing down the text and passing it along. This is compromising the truth that's contained within the Bible. This is disobedience. This is idolatry. Uh, remember uh, the warnings in Deuteronomy where he says, don't be careful to do what I have commanded you. Don't add to or take away. It's not about, you know, hey, when you're writing it down, be very careful that you don't add anything. To, uh, it's about what we do. It's about what it's about keeping the commands. We don't add to God's commands uh, in a legalistic fashion to keep uh, what is man's tradition. And we don't take away from God's commands. Remember the warnings to the seven churches that he gave. Uh, this is for those who do not pers persevere in the faith. He says, you don't add to my statutes and you don't take away from them. The inheritance claimed by the testimony is not theirs if they don't hold to the testimony. This is not a picture of losing your salvation. It's a picture of what's called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. If you add a word, then I'm going to add the plagues to you. If you subtract a word... I'm going to subtract your, your part of, of the tree of life. It's an ironic literary device of warning that's used. If you, if you do not live according to the commands of God, uh, we're talking about direction and practicing those things, not a perfected, you know, not perfection of life. But if you do not live according to the word of God, you have no inheritance is what it's, it's what it's communicating. Then of course, the final message of God, Verse 2021, 20, Jesus gives his stamp of approval uh, on the message of the book. This is the exhortation from God. This is a call for Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus, and grace be on his people until he does come. So, so now you know. Uh, now, hopefully, you understand what God is telling the church through the book of Revelation. It's not just a storybook uh, about things that will happen in the future. <coughs> Excuse me. Nor is it just a history book about things that happened in the past. It is a letter written to seven first century churches, but meant to be used as scripture for guidance and equipping the saints of every age. It is fulfilled. It's, I mean, it's, it's fulfilled. It's filled with pictures that are, that are hard for the modern mind to, to understand, but, but they're, they're also discernible for those who are rooted and grounded in the revelation of the entire Bible itself. Uh, the message is not meant just to give you some secret knowledge that the rest of the church doesn't possess. Uh, and if you go and argue about the facts of revelation without actually applying what the book is teaching to your own life and your heart, you, you've missed the entire point of what the spirits revealed. The book is a, it's a challenge for us. It is uh, a call to remain faithful in a world that seeks nothing better than just to destroy the church. Um, but it also holds out the promise that no matter what happens, God is faithful. Uh, God is faithful to his promise. He promised that a seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head in the garden, Genesis 3.15. He, he preserved that line of the seed. He preserved it through Noah. He preserved it through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He preserved it uh, and covenanted it with David uh, all the way down to its fulfillment of David's descendant, of Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. And now we are to 
remove our eyes from this world because that promise made in Genesis chapter 3, that line of promise that moves through the entirety of Scripture is completed and fulfilled in Christ, in the church, and in the events that culminate the book of Revelation. Uh, Even if that involves persecution, we are to remain faithful. We are to remove our eyes from this world, uh, and we are to set our affections above, uh, understanding that there is something uh, better coming. There is relationship with our God. There's new life. There's a new earth, a new reality where those who have trusted in Christ are going to live in perfect fellowship with all those who have gone before us. And more importantly, with Jesus Christ himself, face to face. And so to end this, I'll leave you with Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. It says, therefore, brethren, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful.